welcome to Faith Point, the podcast ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Prescott Valley with Senior Pastor Carol Eldreth. Our goal is to allow our faith to intersect with real life. So let's join Pastor Carol today as he shares with us from God's Word. you to join me in prayer once again. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for blessings that you give to us each day. And thank you for Jesus Christ your word. Thank you that he is alive and active. He speaks to our hearts and lives through his spirit. And Father, we pray that his spirit would guide us and direct us as we think about what it really means to be the real deal in our Christian lives. So Father, today we pray that our lives would be changed, that we would not leave this building in the same condition that we came in. Let us be more like Jesus. Let us be more holy. Let us be more acceptable in your sight. And thank you for your grace and your mercy. So now we pray that your spirit will speak. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we continue here in 1 Corinthians, and you say, we've been doing that a long time. Yes, we are. But we're only just right at, not quite halfway through. We're only at chapter 8. We still have, after this chapter, 8 more to go. So, you know, somewhere in the next, somewhere in this decade, we should get done with it. I'm not sure. But, um, but he has so much good stuff to tell us and challenging stuff, as we're going to see today. Um, and today, and as we get into these, this chapter and the next chapter, these coming two chapters... Uh, Paul's going to talk a lot about our freedom in Christ and what that is and, and where do we actually draw a line when it comes to our freedom in Christ. So, so we're going to spend a little bit of time here in these two chapters. And, and he already references briefly back in chapter 6. And it's a verse that we're going we're gonna, to, well, we keep coming back and looking at it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 12 in the English Standard Version says this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. That's such an important concept that although we may have freedom to do a lot of things in Christ, some of those things might also enslave us if we're not careful. And so Paul wants us to know where, where some of those lines need to be drawn. And, and, and so we're going to talk about that over the next couple of Sundays. And then he also addresses a number of topics in these couple of chapters that are coming up. But the interesting thing is, in this recurring topic that comes up most often, it is, seems to be uh, the entirety of his reasoning or, his, or his, 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 the focus of his argument, if you will, for, for sharing this truth about our, 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 our freedom in Christ. And it's, but it's one that hardly applies to us at all, it seems, as believers today. I mean, we're 2,000 years past the time of the Apostle Paul, and, and what he talks about more than almost anything here is, is whether to eat or not eat food sacrificed to idols. I don't know about you, but that's never been a consideration in my life when I've gone to the store to buy meat. 
I wonder if this one was sacrificed, this piece was sacrificed to idol, or if this wasn't. When I go to a restaurant and order food, that hasn't really come up in my, in my, in my everyday thinking. But Paul talks about it a lot, but, but he's going to talk a good deal about that. And, and it doesn't necessarily fit our conversation today, but on the other hand, it, matters, it mattered a great deal to these original readers who read this letter from the Apostle Paul. They knew exactly what he was talking about because it was something they dealt with every time they went to the market to buy meat or to buy food. And the non-Christian culture of the first century church, um, what happened was that there were temples scattered all over. And we're talking about, in this case, we're talking about, the, we're talking about what is now the, the country of Turkey, especially western Turkey. Uh, and so that's where most of these churches, this is where the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation are written to. Um, these were, there were churches all over these, these cities that were around, and in all of them were sprinkled and scattered all of these temples to Greek gods for the most part. And they had gods for just about everything, uh, such as Aphrodite and, and Apollo and Poseidon and Zeus and just a whole bunch of others. And people would go to those temples and, and they would purchase various food items. Uh, typically it was meat uh, that they would buy and then they would sacrifice, they would go to one of those temples uh, and they would sacrifice to the gods or the gods of those temples so that they would somehow um, win some imaginary favor for their generosity. And, and that was their lifestyle. That was what they did. And then those items would be sold, that food item would be sold in the marketplace. And, and the idea was being that if, if the steak was special because it had been offered to, um, to, to a specific god, it might have been the god um, uh, a syphilis uh, who was the god of medicine. So if I offer this this this, if I eat this meat that has been offered to this god of medicine and I'm not feeling well, I'm sick, maybe I'll get well. And so there was, this, there was this, this, all these superstitions that existed and that was how they lived their lives. And, and you might see, you, you might score some points if you were doing that. And so as Christianity continued to spread through the cultures and through those cities that were there uh, and then over into, into Greece as well, um, and they would, it was, it was a, the practice was common and the question came up, should now these new Christians eat that meat? Or should they refrain from that because it had been sacrificed to a pagan god? And as you might figure out, there were various opinions on that. Because when you get two people together, you're going to have at least three opinions. And so they did. Um, there, were, there were many who said, no, you shouldn't. No way. Not any way should you eat that meat. Um, because that would be tainted by its association with paganism, with these false gods. And so you wouldn't want to eat that. And by eating that, you might consume some kind of a corrupt spiritual influence in your life. And so just stay away from that. 
But it was cheap meat. It was not as expensive. And so they thought, but I'm getting a good deal on it. And there were Christians who said, no, I don't care what it costs. I don't care how cheap it is. Just stay away from it. And then there were those Christians who said, nonsense. This is meat that has been offered to a God that isn't a God. They don't even exist. It's been offered to a hunk of metal or a piece of wood or some rock. So what difference does it make if you eat it? Because what it was offered to doesn't even exist. And so you can go home and have a good steak and not worry about it. It's not going to harm you any way at all. You can eat whatever you want. And then that third opinion would come along. And the people who held the third opinion uh, said that, that, that they were people who came out of that pagan culture. There were a lot of Jews who had not been in that culture, and so they debated over whether they should eat it, whether you could or couldn't. But then there were those people who'd come from those pagan cultures who were active in worshiping those false gods before they were saved. And so they had a different take on that. They would look at it and they would say, I can't imagine eating that food would be okay. I can't imagine that that would be all right with God. In fact, they were afraid it would draw them back into their pre-Christian days. They said, I don't want to be that person that I was before. I don't want to do those things that I did before I knew Jesus Christ. I am a new creation, and I don't want anything to do with that. I don't know about you when you're growing up or a teenager, but um, I like listening to, to the popular music of the day. I didn't like all of it, but there was some of it I liked listening to even as a Christian. And, I, you know, I, I liked, I, I'll be honest with you, I really liked Glenn Campbell and John Denver. I don't know whether you liked them or not. I did. I like because they're kind of ballady kinds of things, and I like ballady kinds of songs, and so so I like those. But imagine though that I had friends. I had a lot of friends who weren't saved, who weren't Christians, and and if we were talking, and you know, like when I was in, in cross country and track, and we had, had a lot of time to talk while we were running, and you know, we could be talking about you know popular songs and things, and they'd say, "Aren't you a Christian? Why are you listening to these songs?" Well, maybe one of them was a new Christian, and he would say, you know, Terrell, if you listen to that song, I don't understand because I can't listen to that because it reminds me of who I was before I became a Christian. It, it takes me back into dark places. And so I don't want to listen to that music because it, it takes me to places I don't want to be in my mind. And that would be a valid point, wouldn't it? And that's kind of what was happening in, in, in Corinth. And it happens in our culture today as well. It just may not be a slab of meat. It might be music. It might be something else that we have to, to pay attention to and decide how we're going to deal with that. And so that's, that's what they felt at the temple. These new Christians, they said... You know, this practice in, in the, of going to the temple restaurants and markets and selling food uh, that had been sacrificed was drawing them back into a place they didn't want to be. And so, uh, with that in mind, even though the Apostle Paul clearly leans 
in, in his writing and, and it seems very evident that he has this more enlightened view. He kind of, he knows that it's just a piece of meat and he knows that they aren't real gods. They don't exist. There's only one God. And, and so whatever you're doing to worship some false piece of God uh, is not a God anyway. And so he's, he, even though he knows that to be true, um, and, and he recommends a more, kind of a more moderate or a more tempered approach, if you will, to how you deal with those times that you run into somebody who has a different view on something that you might have. And he suggests, he suggests that we do something. He says, I want you to make decisions not based solely on what is right, but rather make them based on what is best for others. And that's what he's going to be talking about here today and in the coming uh, weeks. And so suppose that, that I have no problem with listening to most secular music, especially the genres that I like, and when I hear it, I'm reminded of so many happy moments, but then my friend hears it, and he's reminded of a life that was very different than mine, and, and he never wants those experiences again. And it would be wrong then to try to persuade him that the style of music is harmless. And even though the words themselves may in fact be quite harmless, he says we need to talk about an attitude that, that has a different approach. And so we're going to look at a different approach to our personal ministry as a believer. Because we all have a personal ministry. You say, no, I don't. You don't because you haven't paid attention to God, if you think that. He created every one of us to minister, to share his love to people around us. Because ministry, as we define it here at First Southern, is sharing God's love with other people. And so we're all called to that ministry. And so he said, we need to take a different approach. So this is a guiding principle to follow that he's going to share with us. And we're going to hear it, uh, this idea, in every sermon in this section of, of, of Corinthians, is that it, we, must make our we must make our choices not based on our own privilege. Not just because I can do it and it's okay. Not based on our own sense of privilege, but rather based on what is best for all involved. What's going to be the best for everyone? That's how I have to make my choice. I may know that I am privileged, that I have freedom to do what I want to do. But Paul said that's not the answer. It's not even the question. The question is what's going to be best for everybody, for all involved. So, for example, what will build up the church? What's going to build First Southern? is not my sense of privilege, but what's best for everyone. What's going to bring more people to Christ? It's not my sense of privilege, but what's best for those who are unsaved. What's going to bring or, or give the greatest glory to God? That's not my sense of privilege, but what's best for everyone involved? That's a different mindset for ministry than what most people take. Most people take the mindset that says, if I'm going to minister, I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it, what's best for me? And Paul comes along and just shoots that out of the water. He said, no, that's the wrong question. 
The question is, what's going to help everybody else? And in that, we see, if you will, what it means to be the real deal as a believer, as a Christian. What it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. What it means to truly be spiritual. This is true spirituality, being the real deal. And this is what it says, that he says. It says it's not about living an austere lifestyle. It's not just about giving up a whole bunch of stuff any more than it's about disregarding the rules and claiming they don't matter. So we want to take one side or the other. We want to say, well, I'm just going to give up everything or I'm just going to continue to do everything and pretend like it doesn't matter. Paul said it's neither one. Christianity, the real deal, true spirituality, is not either one of those. And we think, well, then what is it? Because that's all I know. That's all I've been taught. That I either have to be one way or the other. And, and Paul says, no, that's not how you're going to find true spirituality. It's not going to help you to be the real deal. In fact, this is how true spirituality looks, he says in, here in Romans chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. A man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. Verse 3, but the man who loves God is known by God. That's true spirituality. That's where Paul says that we need to be. That's what God is looking for. But we, also, we often try to, to gauge or to measure our spirituality based on what we know, how much we know of what we think we know. And so, so we, are, we go around trying to, to, to know a whole lot because we want to be spiritual. We want to know a lot about the Bible and spiritual things because we figure that's going to make us right with God. But God uses a different standard to measure our spirituality. He doesn't ask you what you think the measurement is. He tells you what his measurement is. And if we're wise... We will follow and live up to his measure, not ours. Again, it's not ours to decide on. And he measures our spirituality based not on what we know, but how much we love. How much we love. Yes, I know we're called to obedience. That's true. And we're called to study God's word. That's true. But I want you to know you can do both of those. You can be obedient and you can, and you can study God's word and still miss the boat. You can still miss the mark of true spirituality. You think, how can that happen? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3 again says, but the man who loves God is known by God. Paul keeps coming back to love, and he will continue to do that. And by the way, how dare we claim to love God if we don't love our brother and our sister? You can't do that. 1 John 4.21 says, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so if you need work in this area of love, and we all do, 
You know what God says? He says, well, hang out at church because everybody there is nice and they're lovable. It's easy to love people who are lovable. It's easy to love me because I'm lovable. Sometimes. It's just easy. So what does God do? God puts you in places where there are people who are not lovable. Who are hard to love. How many of you have a job or had a job where there was somebody you had to work with? Eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. 50 weeks a year. And you look forward to those two weeks of vacation because you didn't have to be around them. Who were not lovable. And God said, yeah, I have you there on purpose. I don't care if you're going to love people who are lovable. I want you to love people who aren't lovable. Because that's going to make you more godly. It's going to make you more like Jesus. That's his standard. And he always puts you around some people who aren't lovable. They could be your neighbor. They could be a family member. Sometimes they could be your spouse. I'm not saying which one, just as a spouse. <laughs> On Valentine's Day, coming up, and they're just not lovable. And he says, yeah, that's where I want you. Now be lovable. Love them. And when you love them, then come and tell me how much you love me. Until then, don't bother to come. Don't bother to tell me how much you love me because it's a lie. That's his measurement. That's where his standard is. How much do you love? How good are you at loving? And I'll say it this way. True spirituality is defined not only by how good you are, because that's what we want the standard to be. That's the measurement I want. I want to just be good. So God accept my goodness. That's not what he does. He wants you to be good. But he says that's not the, all there is to the measurement. It's not only by how good you are, but how good you are to others. How good are you to the people that are hard to love? How good are you at loving people who are cantankerous? People who just make your skin crawl? He said, I'm watching that. That's my standard of measurement. So this morning, the debate about eating meat uh, that had been sacrificed to idols is not exactly part of our cultural conversation, but the principles that Paul is talking about are so valid for today and so necessary in our lives for today because it shows us what true spirituality, what being the real deal as a believer is all about. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So I want to share three others-oriented marks of true spirituality. And, and these are marks that you have to develop. These are things that God's going to help you develop, but you've got to be willing to do that. And they're work. They're not easy to do. The first mark of, of ori others-oriented true spirituality is, is evidenced by love. Just by love, how much you love. Now, there are four things that, that you have to master in your personal life to become the real deal spiritually. 
four things that have to be mastered. Number one, you need to be committed. You need to be committed to this goal of spirituality. Not every Christian is. Not every Christian really cares about that. They, they want to know that they're saved. They want to know that they're going to go to heaven. And that's about it. And I hope that's no one in here. But, but it's not uncommon. I mean, what else does God want from me? You know, I show up at church once in a while, and I give some money occasionally, and, you know, and I, I know I'm going to go to heaven because I prayed the sinner's prayer, and, and I meant it. And so, you know, I just, I just not really committed, though, to this idea of, of true spirituality. And so you need to be able to say, I'm not going to let the world, or I'm not going to let sin, I'm not going to let I'm not money or enemies or friends or family stand in my way of becoming close to God. So there has to be this decision of commitment that says, I want to be close to God. I want to be the real deal. I want to walk in spirituality. And then the second thing that you have to have is you need to be disciplined. Because in order to accomplish, number one, to be able to be committed, then it's going to take some discipline on yourself. You need to be able to govern yourself and even, I will say, force yourself to do some things that you don't necessarily feel like doing. I don't like that person who's unlovable at work. I don't like that neighbor. I hate their barking dog. I don't want to do that hard work. And so there are times when he's going to say, yeah, but you got to. You've got to force yourself to do that. And, and then, uh, not only are there times you have to, you don't feel like doing it, but, but you, have to, you have to do what you really feel, you have to, to not do what you most feel like doing. I feel like just reaming them out verbally. I want to use every bad word that I can think of to tell them how lousy they are. That's what I want to do. And the, the Christian who isn't the real deal right now will do that. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand to say, have you ever cussed somebody out? But have you ever belittled somebody, some poor girl at the checkout stand who's having a hard time counting the change back or, or whatever it might be? And I want to tell them how stupid they must be. Did you not go to school? Did not teach you anything? True spirituality says you got to discipline yourself. Do things you don't want to do and not do things that you really want to do sometimes. And I know, gone from preaching to meddling now, but all of us need our toes stepped on in that area. Just because you can is not the reason to do it. Not just because you can and you think it won't affect you spiritually, doesn't mean you get to do it. Discipline says, do the things you don't want to do, don't do the things that you do want to do sometimes. And then thirdly, you need to be consistent. 
There has to be consistency in what you do. You need to be able to govern yourself and force yourself um, sometimes, and you make it a regular habit, a habit of prayer, of Bible study, of fellowship with other believers around the Word of God, of worship, of service to God. Those things need to be done, not half-heartedly. Those are the five things that we say are the foundation the fundamentals of church life and of the Christian life. We teach them, I teach them at our new member seminar, at every seminar that is there. The five functions of the church, the five functions of the Christian life. You have to do those. And you don't do them half-heartedly. They have to be done consistently. And then fourthly, you need to be teachable. And I know I didn't give you any place to put these because they kept falling off of the page when I tried to put them on. There just wasn't any more room there on your page. But um, if you didn't get them written down, um, watch the sermon again after this afternoon, like at about 4.30. I'll try to preach as long as the Super Bowl goes so you don't have to go to watching the Super Bowl that way. So be teachable. You need to become a student of the Word of God. You need to know, you need to learn what the Bible says. What, what does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about, oh, holiness or forgiveness? What does it say about parenting? What does it say about marriage? What does it say about, about career ambition? Um, and all, you know, every other area of our life, the Bible speaks to that. And so be teachable. Be a student of God's word. Spend time in, in study classes and small groups here at church. Spend time uh, on your own in God's word and learn what God's word says about every area of your life. And, and that's why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. However, and this is a big however, However, as important as all four of those habits are and vital, Paul tells us they're not the end all of true spirituality. You mean I could do all four of those things? I could do all of those and still miss the boat on true spirituality? And the answer is yes. You could. There's something much more important than any of these. Paul tells us, even though those are all vitally important, you must develop love. You have to develop love. A heart full of love. He says in verse 1, Knowledge puffs up. You can have a lot of knowledge, but it will make you, it can make you feel arrogant, proud. And that's not true spirituality. But love, he says, builds up. And then he continued, remember, in, in verse 3, but the man who loves God is known by God. And so he says, that's the mark. 
So further in First Corinthians, we watched part of it on this video before I came up here. We read part of it in, together in, our, in, our, in looking at our verses for the week to memorize. But the love chapter, chapter 13 that we're going to get to later as we study through this book, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 2 and 3, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains and have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. You know what he's telling us? He's telling us this truth, that Love is the primary component of the Christian life. Without love, it's just not real. If out, without love, you missed the mark. You have to have a heart of love in order to be the real deal, to know true spirituality. You heard the saying, and it's almost a cliche, but again, it's one of those cliches is truth. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You cannot get around that axiom. It is always going to be there. You have to have a heart that cares. And in the same, uh, same sense uh, can be said about God. His primary concern for your spiritual growth is not how much you know, but how much you love when you stand before the throne on judgment day and we're all going to stand there God is not going to say to you wow you really knew the great didn't you he's not going to say to you wow I'm impressed you could argue the, author, the authorship of Isaiah with the best of them he is not going to say to you, wow, you sat at the same place in the same pew for 57 consecutive years. Those are not the things he's marking down on your ledger sheet. They might be good things, and they might help you know some stuff, but that's not what he's looking for. That's not his standard of measurement. He wants you to develop a heart full of love towards others and toward him. Remember this statement. True spirituality isn't, isn't measured merely by how good you are, but how good you are to others. Secondly, not only is spirituality true spirituality, evidenced by love, it's also evidenced by empathy. By empathy. Empathy is, is, a, is a word that we use a lot and sometimes we forget what it means, but empathy is simply the capacity to identify with another person. To see what they're going through and put yourself in their place, to kind of walk a mile in their shoes to understand what's going on in their life. It's, it's putting yourself in, that, in their shoe to see the world from, from their point of view. Whether it's a man or woman, doesn't matter. You just, you see the world from, you, you, you train yourself to see the world from where they're at and what they're thinking. Um, so in, in, in discussing this matter of eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, remember Paul had already stated that it is not a sin 
He said, if you eat it, it's not a sin. But he doesn't say you have to eat it. And he doesn't say not to eat it. It's just not a sin either way you go. But then, what does he do? He goes on to say the following. He says, he says in verses 9 through 11, Be careful, however, that the ex- exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you have, um, sees you have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. He said, we can destroy somebody's spiritual life because we think we have privilege. We think we have rights. We think we have knowledge. Now, we've all heard about the trigger warnings, and sometimes they can really be kind of silly. I remember uh, a while back, I was watching um, the... The Chronicles of, um, excuse me, the Lion and the Witch and the, and the Wardrobe, not even the whole Chronicles of Narnia, just that, the first one. Um, and it was streaming. And, and right before it started, this warning came on. And it said, warning, um, this movie contains tobacco dis- depictions. And that seemed kind of silly that they would do that. Um, and, you know, maybe um, it seemed a little excessive. But, you know, that could be a trigger for somebody. Somebody who's trying to get over smoking, who's trying to stop smoking. Um, if they see in this movie that, that is pretty much a Christian movie, you know, that people are smoking or they're smoking a pipe and that kind of thing, that might be a problem for them. Um, but, but without taking it to an extreme, we can make, make it a point to emphasize with the struggles of those around us who may have um, and uh, the struggles they may have and to respond to them accordingly. Let me give some examples. If someone is trying to develop a healthier lifestyle, don't sit in front of them chomping on a huge bag of potato chips. If somebody has recently lost a loved one, don't make light of life struggles. If somebody is struggling with depression, don't talk about bad news all the time. If someone still associates with a certain time of music, type of music with the worst phase of their life, don't sing those songs in their presence. You need to empathize. You need to look at where they're at, where their shoes headed, where are they coming from. And then you make your choices based on that. And that type of attitude, that kind of empathy, takes some time to develop in our lives as Christians. On the one hand, we want to be able to say, I refuse to allow, I just don't want to allow some other person to dictate the kind of music that I'm going to listen to, um, I, 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 and what kind of food I'm going to eat, and what I'm going to talk about when they're around, and to a certain extent, that's justified to feel that way and to think that. Because we don't have to live our lives at the whim of others. 
For example, I'm not going to let someone else prevent me from talking about Jesus or praying or reading scripture just because they don't like it. However, this isn't about letting other people make our decisions for us. It is just the opposite. It's about being sensitive to the needs of those people around us. And if one simple adjustment on my side can help strengthen someone in their walk with Jesus Christ, and then it's, adjust, it's an adjustment I need to make. That's something I need to do. We must learn to see our world through the eyes of others. Why? Because true spirituality isn't measured merely by how good you are, but how good you are to others. And so true spirituality is evidenced by love, is evidenced by empathy, and thirdly, true spirituality is evidenced by sacrifice. Paul says very flatly in verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. I am not going to do that. In the book of Romans, in chapter 14, verse 21, he said it this way, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Paul's saying, when someone else's spiritual health, when their spiritual health is at stake, you must be willing to sacrifice your freedom for their benefit. You say, I know I could do these things, but if I do this thing or these things, it might cause my brother or my sister in Christ to fall, and I will give up my right, my freedom, for their spiritual health. That's what he's saying. In the culture Paul lived in, eating food sacrificed to idols was an issue. In ours, it's not. There are, however, other freedoms that we should approach with caution in order not to cause any of our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. We don't have to cause that stumbling in their life. And you may be convinced that certain things are okay to do and not conflict with your Christian life. In fact, there are a number of things that we make issues out of that the Bible never mentions at all. And you may be absolutely right when you insist that we are free to do them. But that's not the point. That's what Paul is saying. It is not the point. The point is that true spirituality is evidenced by our willingness to sacrifice so-called freedoms for the sake of a fellow Christian. Now let me go to the other side. On the other side of the coin, if you if you if you take a great deal of pride in all the things that you don't do, don't make the mistake of thinking that your austerity makes you spiritual. If you don't smoke, drink, cuss, or chew, or run around with girls that do, 
You don't dance, you don't go to movies, you don't watch TV, you don't listen to secular music, you don't wear facial hair. Uh, so ladies, you, you can wear it, I guess. Or makeup, it doesn't mean that you're spiritual. Spirituality doesn't have to do with any of those things. That's not true spirituality. Spirituality is not about surface level behavior because that's what those are. Spirituality, true spirituality, is not measured merely by how good you are, but how good you are to others. Therefore, if anything, if anything that you do causes someone to stumble in their faith, it's best not for you to do it at all. It's best to sacrifice so-called freedoms for their spiritual needs. And some of you are going to stop me in a foyer and you're going to say, but... But, but, does that mean if anyone disapproves of what I do, I can't do it? No matter how insignificant it is? Does that mean I let other people control my life? For example, Pastor, what if somebody doesn't like the fact that I play golf? And it causes them to stumble. Am I supposed to give up golf? If you play like I do, it's probably not a bad idea. <laughs> or what if they think it's wrong for someone to continue to consume caffeine? Am I supposed to give up coffee? Oh, now gone to preaching. And stepping on toes. I want to take a moment for a distinction here. I want to make something clear. Paul is talking about sacrificing for a weaker fellow Christian. If anything causes <clears throat> that weaker, younger, spiritually immature believer to question the validity of their faith, then you should not do it. If they watch you or see you doing something or hear about you doing something and it makes them think, if then I must, you know, they must not be you know, what's going on? I, I'm, am I really a Christian? Can I even be a Christian? That was the eating sacrifice, meat sacrifice to idols of his day. He said we should be willing to sacrifice in order to prevent that person. But there are some people, there are some Christians who what you do does not cause them to question the validity of their faith. It causes them to question the validity of your faith. They're not thinking, I'm going to lose my salvation if I do that. They're thinking, I'm sure glad I don't do that, but they shouldn't. And they're not hesitant to tell you. And they want to judge you because you eat pork or you drink coffee or you play golf. And here's my word on that. And I'm going to quote Paul. I think I'm okay with the Holy Spirit saying it. They're busybodies. Ignore them. Just ignore them. Don't argue with them. Just ignore them. You're not hurting their faith not hurting their salvation 
They just think you're strange. So just ignore them. Now you would think a sermon on being the real deal when it comes to being a Christian, on true spirituality, would focus on disciplines we talked about before, prayer, Bible study, fasting, worship, fellowship, evangelism, and so on. And they're all absolutely necessary and essential to living the Christian life. So don't make the mistake of thinking that, that the Bible says, if I'm just nice to people, I'm going to be a good Christian. No, 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 that's not what Paul is saying. Not at all. Why? Because the Christian life is so much deeper than that. We all know that the Christian life means that we are striving to become like God. Jesus said to be like him. And he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're trying to be godly. We're trying to be holy. We're trying to strive to become like Jesus. However, being like Jesus involves so much more than just praying and reading your Bible and turning off the TV. What, what true spirituality really comes down to, being like Jesus involves letting God's presence in your life, the fact that he lives in you as his temple, through his Holy Spirit, let this presence in your life bring out the best in you and it shows in your relationships. Doesn't matter what you do and how you try to get around it, God will always bring it back to your relationships with people and how you love them or don't love them. And if you want to be the real deal, you will love them. If you want to be like Jesus, remember, true spirituality isn't measured by how, merely by how good you are, but how good you are to others. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you that you love us, and we're certainly not lovable. You love us, and we're not good. Not by your standards, and yet you still love us perfectly. So, Father, help us to adopt, to accept a new standard of measurement in our lives. A measurement that says how we love other people shows how we love you. For some of us, that might be an embarrassing thought. That if how I love my neighbor or that friend or that family member is an indication of how I love you. I'm embarrassed to come before you today. Father, forgive us for those times when we have chosen not to love. Thank you for putting us in hard places to let us learn to love perfectly as you love. There may be one here today. There may be somebody listening right now even in their living room, who's desperately in need of being loved. They can't find anybody who shows that type of love that you call us to. 
There's nobody in their life. There's nobody in their in their in their person in their their sphere of friends and family members who shows that type of love, that perfect love. Let them see it in Jesus today. Let them trust Jesus to be the lover of their soul. Let them find joy and happiness in that love right now by simply saying, Jesus, I know I'm not good. In fact, I'm anything but good. But I want to confess my sin to you. I want to confess my unworthiness to you, my sinfulness to you. And right now I ask you to forgive my sins, to cleanse my heart and give me a new life. I want to be like Jesus. I want to live with him for eternity. Thank you, Jesus, that you will answer that prayer. Now, Father, some of us just need to make choices about how we're going to live. Are we going to be the real deal? Are we going to be a fake? Are we going to be a facade of what a Christian is supposed to be? An empty shell with a lot of knowledge, but no love. Or are we going to choose to be vital Christians who are alive, active, who are the real deal, who are truly spiritual because we're filled with a heart of love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If God's speaking to you, if you need to make a choice today, if you need a church home, or you want to be baptized, or you want to know more about how to be a Christian, you come and talk to us today. Thank you for joining us today for Faith Point. Reach us online at firstsouthernpv.org or stop by to worship with us if you are in the Prescott Valley area. May God richly bless you today as you allow your faith to intersect with your life.